0: to my little friend. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 2 of Say Hello to My Little Friend, the Beretta Cast. This is Glenn Peoples. As I mentioned last time, uh, this episode begins a series of two on religion in the public square. So I hope you find that interesting and as well as that we'll have our usual uh, This Week in History and the podcast roundup. But we're going to kick things off by talking about religion in the public square Now, I'm going to start off by introducing a word, Uh, that word is prohibitionism, because prohibitionism is the name that I've given to a position that I don't like, I don't agree with it, and it's one that I I spent some time uh, during my uh, PhD research writing against. So what is it? Well, prohibitionism is a word that I have recoined. I've used it for a couple of reasons. Firstly, prohibitionism is an outlook that morally prohibits us from drawing on our religious beliefs in a certain way as members of modern society. And so the term seems appropriate because, you know, it's about prohibiting something. And secondly, the word prohibitionism has a pretty ugly history referring to an era in the history of America Uh, riddled with organized crime and gang-related activities. Um, If you've seen the movie Untouchables, you'll know what I mean. Um, So in recoining the term to apply to the position I reject, I guess I'm using the term to poison the well just a little in my favor. So in one sentence, what is it? Well, prohibitionism is the view that it is wrong to do something in the public square simply on the basis of our religious convictions. There it is. Now when I talk about doing something in the public square I mean something fairly specific. Uh, I don't just mean doing something where other people can see you. I'm talking about the things that we do as public participants in the political process. How's that for alliteration? For example, it includes when you vote, Uh, if you're an elected official, it includes pretty much everything you do in your elected capacity, Uh, it includes whether or not you sign a petition supporting a certain law or public policy, it includes the things that you advocate the state to enforce by law, and just anything like that. I mean, that's not exhaustive, but they give some pretty good examples, I hope, of the kind of thing that I mean. According to prohibitionism, you must never act in any of those capacities for religious reasons alone. So you shouldn't do any of those things if your only reason for doing them is a religious belief that you hold. Okay, Now, for the purposes of a fairly brief presentation of this view, I mean, I wrote a 100,000-word thesis on it, Um, So we could be here a while, so I'm trying to be pretty succinct about this. I'll use Robert Audi as an example, uh, a well-known American philosopher, uh, because he's one of the uh, leading figures advocating this perspective in recent years. Now, we need to start out by saying, okay, what is religion? What does it mean for a perspective to be religious? Because if you're going to prohibit that, you need to know what you're prohibiting So Robert Audi puts it like this, he says, I cannot here try to define religious, but for our purposes, uh, sorry, it must for our purposes be taken sufficiently narrowly to permit a distinction between the moral and the religious, so that, for example, not just any seriously held moral belief counts as religious. It may help in understanding what constitutes a religion to keep in mind nine features each of which is relevant, though not strictly necessary, to a social institution constituting a religion. So here we go, here's the checklist. Number one, belief in supernatural beings. Two, a distinction between sacred and profane objects. Three, ritual acts focused on those objects. Four, a moral code believed to be sanctioned by the god. And it's got S in bracket god or gods five. Religious feelings or mystery, etc that tend to be aroused by the sacred objects and during the rituals. Six. Prayer and other communicative forms concerning the gods. Seven. A worldview according to the sorry a worldview according the individual a significant place in the universe. eight a more or less comprehensive organization of one's life based on the worldview, and nine, a social organization bound together by the preceding. Okay, so he's pretty explicit about what he means by religion. He says that not every item on that list must be present in every case, but it's it's quite clear that most of the items on the list specify an explicitly theological and worship-oriented outlook. So that's what he means when he says religious. This is the kind of thing that needs to be uh, prohibited from being your only basis of acting in the public square. All right. Now, more specifically, what he means when he talks about that prohibition uh, he sums up in two principles uh, one is the principle of secular rationale okay so you must be able to supply a secular that is a not not religious reason for your advocacy of any policy so for example and I'll use the abortion policy because it's conveniently controversial if you're trying to to say that you know, abortion should not be legal, that Mary should not be allowed to have this abortion, you can't use um, just a religious reason. You can't say, well, because uh, the unborn counts as human life according to the Bible and human life is sacred uh, because it's made in the image of God. You have to be able to give Mary a secular or, or basically a godless reason, a reason that doesn't have anything to do with religion as defined by Robert Audi and more strongly than that Robert Audi gives us the principle of secular motivation now this is in in my opinion a very strong principle it's it's the idea that you must be able to do more than just give a secular rationale that rationale must actually be what motivates you personally Okay, you can't be insincere and just make up secular reasons why Mary shouldn't have an abortion when actually you're only motivated by your own religious reasons. They have to be secular reasons that actually are your reasons for advocating that policy. Now, it might not be apparent at first, but let that sink in for a bit. That's a really strong demand. It means, for example, that you can't say to Mary, Look, I can give you reasons why, even according to your worldview and outlook, you should believe abortion is wrong. According to the principle of secular rationale and secular motivation, that's not good enough. You have to actually be able to give her reasons that motivate you. Now that strikes me as really quite restrictive uh, in the way that you're able to engage in reason with other people. It's not enough to convince them. You have to be convinced yourself by the reasons that you're giving. Okay. Now, why would anyone hold this view? You know, Why would you say you can't advocate any policy unless you have godless grounds for doing so? Um, well, Robert Audi is, is good enough to give us some reasons. Um, and there are two reasons that I think are the most promising, or the most prominent anyway. He first explains that where there is a majority affiliation, like say you're living in a largely Christian country, you're a largely Jewish or a largely Muslim country, the government would inevitably make decisions that are detrimental to religious minorities. And he, that's a bad thing, he says. And, and you know, if the majority of citizens, say the majority of, of Christian citizens, if it's a largely Christian nation, Um, vote or make political decisions based on their Christian beliefs, then that's going to, say, be detrimental to a Muslim minority living in in that country. And that's bad. But my first response to that is, doesn't a secular government also make decisions that are detrimental to religious minorities? I mean... In recent years, especially since 9 11, um, in some Western countries, Muslim women are forbidden from wearing a veil over their faces in school or uh, in testifying in court. That's an even bigger one. Now, the rationale there is that the interests of justice demand that certain religious practices be forbidden or at least suspended. Now, So the issue isn't whether or not religious minorities are negatively affected. The issue is whether or not there are good reasons for negatively affecting them. There's no reason to assume that no matter what the religion, if it gained majority status, it just would unjustly make decisions detrimental to religious minorities any more than we should assume that a society where atheism is the majority will just inevitably and unjustly make decisions that are detrimental to religious minorities. There's no reason to make that assumption at all. We accept that sometimes it's justified to to uh, make decisions that are detrimental to religious minorities. Secondly, um, Audi gives us a purely pragmatic reason for why we should keep our religious beliefs out of politics, out of our public life. He says, religious disagreements are... Likely to polarise government, especially regarding law and policy concerning religion. Each religious group will tend to have its own conception, not only of what constitutes a religion in the first place, but also of what criteria a religious group must fulfil to receive exemptions and other benefits. So we say, well, you know, if 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 you get every, if you get a bunch of religious people say in in parliament, or even just in society then they're all going to be basically special interest groups. And they'll polarize over issues such as which uh, which religion should be preferred, and that'll be a big mess. We, we can't live like that. And so you should just keep your religious perspectives out of politics and public life. Well, I, th- I think there are a couple of responses to that. Firstly, is that uniquely a feature of religion? I mean, it sounds to me like he's describing New Zealand Parliament today. Um, And is it necessarily a feature of religion, that it will demand specific legal benefits over other religions? I think the answer is no in each case. It's not unique to religion, and it's not a necessary feature of religion. Um, Certainly other issues than religious ones are just as polarizing as well. You take uh, the war in Iraq. That's incredibly polarizing. The, the release of genetically modified organisms into the market and to the environment, uh, the role of the state in healthcare care provision, and plenty of other issues besides. I mean, we could come up with dozens of these things. Uh, oh, e- even on a grander scale, religious clashes between Sunnis and Shiites are no less spectacular than those of, in the early to mid-20th century between socialists and fascists. Um, I mean, they were... They were hugely polarizing and very damaging to society. Now, Dr. Audi, Audi sorry, um, thinks that he has a, a reply already made to this, but I think it's somewhat cynical. Here's what he says. He says, Granted that secular disputes can also polarize, other things being equal, they have less tendency to do this, or at least to produce irreconcilable differences. If ideological disputes, say, between communism and fascism, seem exceptions to this point, that may be in part because of how much an ideology can have in common with a religion. Indeed, there may be no sharp distinction between certain kinds of deeply internalized ideology and certain kinds of religion. Now I want you to notice the move that has now been made. You shouldn't base policies on religious convictions. Because that leads to polarization in a way that non-religious policies do not. And any non-religious policy that polarizes is really basically a religious one after all. Now this is wrong at every level. Either the tendency to polarize distinguished policies advanced on religious grounds from policies advanced on non-religious grounds, or it does not. And in fact it does not. Additionally, One, I at least, cannot help notice the temporary widening in Audi's definition of religion. Remember that earlier he was very careful to define religion very narrowly, uh, entailing things like belief in God, prayer to God, rituals and a moral code delivered by God, together with the trappings of an institutional church. But now Audi widens the definition sufficiently so that he can sweep away any... Uh, problematic secular cases of polarization under the rug of religion so that they become not counter evidence against his claim about religion and polarization but rather evidence for his claim that religious beliefs polarize since these ideolo- uh, sorry ideologies must really be religious. I mean, after all, they polarize, don't they? It, it's a tactic that is symptomatic of a completely circular argument. So why not just drop the practice of singling out religion and just say, no beliefs that polarize should serve as the basis of any public policy? Moreover, there is no evidence that a policy that I advance on religious grounds will necessarily be polarizing. What if I am advocating for religious reasons, my own personal reasons are religious, but I'm advocating a policy that double murderers should get the death penalty? And let's say that my atheist neighbor happens to agree with me, but he agrees on what he thinks are secular grounds, but we agree on the same policy. Now, that particular issue, I grant, may still be polarizing. I mean, it's about the death penalty. But um, I think it illustrates that there may be a number of possible policies that we might endorse for religious reasons that other people might accept for secular reasons. So it's not necessarily true that just because policies are endorsed for, sick, for for sorry religious reasons, that they will be polarizing. They might not be. Perhaps most importantly, however, it's questionable. In fact, I think it's just wrong outright to assume that where people polarize over an issue, there should be no law on that issue. People were polarized over slavery too, but slavery uh, should be banned anyway, regardless of whether that's a polarizing decision. Um, So right at the outset of these two episodes on the subject, I want to nail my colours to the mast as clearly as possible. I do not think that there are any really good reasons to keep our religious beliefs out of our public or political practices. Now, there might be some excellent reasons to keep certain religious beliefs out of certain public or political practices. Uh, For example, I don't think we should require brides to be thrown onto the funeral pyre of their husbands on religious grounds. I think that's wrong. And I may say more about that uh, as we carry on. But uh, certainly I think there's no reason to say that all religious beliefs should be kept out of all public and political practices. Okay, now when we come back, I'll say a little bit more about uh, where the discussion is going to head um, in our next episode, because time is racing by. We've already crossed the 18-minute mark, and we've still got other things to get through too, like the uh, This Week in History section, and then the podcast roundup. So don't go anywhere. I will be right back. Hi, this is Dee Dee Warren of the Preterist Podcast, where I discuss biblical prophecy without the hype and sensationalism found in many evangelical circles. So if you would like to learn a different yet completely orthodox way to view things such as the Great Tribulation and the so-called Rapture, please have a listen. The podcast can be found on iTunes and many other podcasting directories or can be found directly at preteristpodcast.com. And we're back. Now, where are we so far? Well, I've told you basically what prohibitionism is. Uh, I've told you its its main stance on the role of religious beliefs in public life, and I've made it pretty clear that I don't buy it. Um, next time, in, in the next episode of Say Hello to My Little Friend, I'll be talking about some of the political philosophers like John Rawls, uh, Gerald Gauss, who's one of the main contemporary figures, Uh, who talk about the issue of justification and about justifying our beliefs and the level of justification that a belief must have before we can bring it with us into public life and then the question of whether or not religious beliefs have that level of justification. And of course I'll be raising the possibility that uh, maybe religious beliefs do have that level of justification but that these guys are so biased against religious beliefs they don't think so or they won't admit it or what have you. But that's where we're going next time. Uh, But in the meantime... That's right, it's time for our second installment now of This Week in History. And this week in history, 25th of May, according to the Orthodox calendar, this is the day on which Christ's ascension to heaven is commemorated on the Feast of the Ascension. 25th of May 1521 The Diet of Worms Ended The Diet of Worms Ends Martin Luther Having refused To recant his beliefs For this refusal The Holy Roman Emperor Not so Holy Roman Emperor Charles V Declared Luther To be a criminal And a heretic 25th of May 1535, after radical Anabaptists had held the city of Munster under siege for nearly a year, the army of the city's Catholic bishop breaks in, kills the ringleaders and releases everyone. The city had been besieged following Melchior Hoffman's alleged prophecy that Jesus would soon return and the Christians in Munster would be the only survivors. Tim LaHaye and Hal Lindsay eat your heart out. Uh, May 26, 2004, in Alexandria, Egypt, archaeologists discover what they believe to be the oldest university in the world, dating back to around the 5th century CE. Uh, That's A.D. 27th of May, 1564, John Calvin, French Protestant reformer, dies, age 54. He kept writing and ministering to the Christians in Geneva nearly up to his death, telling his worried friends, What? Would you have the Lord find me idle when he comes? May ninth, 1453, Constantinople, the capital of Eastern Christianity since Constantine founded it in 324, falls to the Turks under Muhammad II, ending the Byzantine Empire. Uh, Muslims rename the city Istanbul and turn its lavish cathedral Hagia Sophia into a mosque. And by the way, give They Might Be Giants a snappy topic for a song. May 29th, 1953, this is the one for the New Zealanders out there. Mount Everest is scaled for the first time. Edmund P. Hillary of New Zealand, who passed away earlier this year, by the way, and Tenzing Norke of Nepal are the first humans to stand on the peak. May 30th, 339, Eusebius dies at age 74. If you don't know who Eusebius is, go kill yourself. He's the author of the 10-volume Ecclesiastical History. He is called the father of church history. May 30th, 1431, French mystic and revolutionary Joan of Arc burns at the stake for heresy. Her last words were, Jesus, Jesus. Uh, June the 1st, 165, well that's the traditional date anyway, the early Christian apologist Justin Martyr earns his now famous name, being beheaded with his disciples for their faith. And looks like we've just run out of music, which means there was no more history this week. And it's time now to move on to the blog roundup. Uh, There'll be a few pet peeves coming to the surface this time, but it has to happen sometime. Uh, Berto-Meister.blogspot.com. The name of the blog is Berto Philosophy Monkey. I think that's an appropriate name. He claims that the Euthyphro is the ultimate refutation of religious morality. His words. (laughs) Now, this is going to seem like a pet peeve. It is. The guy is about 30 years out of touch, but unfortunately he's not alone. Uh, Just visit sources of supreme objectivity like richarddawkins.net or a number of websites and blogs contributed to by angry or just somewhat internet geeky but still undereducated atheists who think that they've discovered some sort of new magic bullet against Christian ethics uh, that appeal to divine commands as the basis of morality. Now, I'd fault them for not even taking a first-year paper in philosophy of religion or maybe ethics, but unfortunately it's just possible that they have taken a first-year paper. Uh, As I've discovered, teachers of ethics who comment on theologically grounded ethics, like Peter Singer is a a more famous example, or a local lecturer who I won't name here, uh, really have any background in philosophy of religion, or if they do, it is painfully lopsided and uninformed. And so they often cite the so-called Euthyphro dilemma uh, without having read any of the torrents of rebuttals that were written in the latter part of the 20th century. It's as though different standards of scholarship apply when it comes to dismissing unpopular religious theories. And so long as one has a receptive audience, as he or she often will in a secular university, Uh, a superficial and half-baked treatment will do. Yes, I've said it before, I remind you again, this is a pet peeve. It's the reason I wrote the article, Is There an Echo in Here, which is at the Beretta website, uh, www.beretta-online.com, in the philosophy category of the articles. And there really is an echo in here of refuted arguments that just get repeated and repeated and repeated to an audience that has never heard the refutation. But I'll end my mini-rant there. And move on to number two. This is a blog I do quite like, although I haven't visited for some time, and so I dropped by again to see how it was going. Uh, David Farrar, or David Farrar, I'm never really sure how to to pronounce his name, over at kiwiblog.co.nz, or .nz for all my my American listeners, here's what he has to say. I have a real concern, uh, writes Mr. Farrar, or Farrar, about the growing authoritarianism of this government that's the New Zealand government in regards to law and order he says now don't get me wrong i am hard line on catching and punishing criminals i think parole and bail laws should be much tighter and supporting trialing sorry and support trialing a broken windows approach such as christchurch is doing i confess not to know very much about that but he goes on but taking away more and more rights in the name of, quote, law and order is something the government, and not just the government, but they are the ones in government, is doing. Let us look at the recent issues. He gives us a list. A Labour MP proposes taking away the right to silence. That was on the news here recently. The government is considering legislation to force telcos, that's telecommunication companies, to intercept and store All text messages in case they need them for some stage at some stage for law enforcement purposes number three the Prime Minister is directly discussing operational issues with the police commissioner let's hear it for separation of powers which we theoretically have Uh, the no right turn which is a, a blog here in New Zealand Uh, covers the government's latest proposals to give the police power to make people remove clothing or leave a public area, which he describes as allowing the police to make up the law as they go. In other words, there are no predefined rules about what you can and can't do. Uh, They simply have the power. Uh, And regardless of whether or not there are any rules uh, in support of their instructions that they give you, you will be arrested and fined if you don't comply. Number five, the Prime Minister is advocating to allow people to be retried for the same crime after being found not guilty. If new evidence is, he's crossed out, manufactured and put, discovered. Now the idea of a communist retrial is, this is me speaking now, I'm not quoting the blog anymore, is the paradigm case of injustice and sinister totalitarianism. And yet our Prime Minister is, is, is considering that very thing. She's advocating it. Now, um, quoting from from Kiwi Blog again. Now we do have a law and order problem in New Zealand. We have made it easier for repeat offenders to get bail. Parole has been a right and not a privilege. Probation is almost a sick joke. Gangs run their operations out of prisons, etc. But rather than target the core problems of bail, parole, probation, and corrections, who would have thought? We are seeing moves towards what I call authoritarianism. Well. David, it's not just what you call authoritarianism, it's what the dictionary calls authoritarianism. Uh, my comments now. It's been growing for a while, I think. Uh, I mean, this is the government that has consistently endorsed compulsory unions for tertiary students. It has seriously discussed and may yet implement laws against perceived hate speech. Its members of parliaments, parliament have co-opted police officers to drive around people's homes to collect bills, I kid you not, as the first means of contact. Um, <laughs> we might as well live in France. Number three on the blog roundup. A fellow by the name of Keith Burgess Jackson, or is it Keith Burgess? Keith Burgess Jackson, I'll say, had this to say at his blog, uh, his blog at keithburgess-jackson.com, a blog that was formerly known as The Anal Philosopher, which is what attracted my attention, on the question of whether or not science makes belief in God obsolete. Keith has this to say. Quote, Scientists, as such, provide naturalistic explanations of natural phenomena, such as the movements of the planets, the behavior of coyotes, and the process of photosynthesis. God, by definition, is a supernatural being, albeit one who can intervene in the natural world which God created. Science, by its own terms, has nothing to say about the existence of God and cannot therefore make belief in God obsolete. Only someone who is woefully confused about either science or God, or both, could think otherwise. Now, on the one hand, I actually appreciate this. I appreciate that an atheist with an opinion who blogs on the subject is not Richard Dawkins, or or Hitchens, or Dennett, or any other fundy like that who thumps the pulpit and tells us that science has done away with God. And it's true that the physical sciences are powerless to rule out supernatural beings altogether, just like the study of the planet Earth cannot possibly rule out the existence of, say, Pluto. But is it really true that science could never have anything to say about evidence for the existence of God, which is what this fellow claims? Let's grant that a number of philosophical arguments for the existence of God are not strictly scientific, like the moral argument or the argument from beauty, or probably many others. Still, there is the Kalam cosmological argument that, successfully or not, is clearly an argument that draws at least partly on scientific premises. But let's consider the following scenario. Okay, let's imagine. First century investigators into the death of Jesus have observed his execution And later, they all observe his empty tomb, and they have a physical encounter with him alive again. Okay, stop imagining. Is this unscientific in the sense that it can't be reproduced after the fact? Well, yes. Is it unscientific in every way? Well, no. If it actually happened, then it would be a finding based on the observable physical scientific natural evidence. So, um, I think he's wrong. We could also imagine a whole host of purely hypothetical cases. Uh, take, for example, miraculous and immediate answers to prayers that were observed by, for example, medical experts. Would uh, They would be one example. Whether you believe that God exists or not, surely there must be some observable phenomenon that would at least count as science having something to say on the matter. I think that while it sounds broad-minded to say that science does not commit either way, It's potentially a dogmatic way of saying that no observable phenomena pointing to God's existence have ever taken place. But for what it's worth, I I don't want to sound like I'm ragging on the guy, I like his blog. Uh, Keith Burgess Jackson's blog is definitely worth following as one of the more level-headed blogs out there, written from a self-consciously atheistic point of view. I've added it to my bloglines subscriptions, and if you don't use bloglines, that's a really good web-based way of subscribing to blogs. So there you go. Number four on my blog roundup this time. Okay, it's not really a blog, but I figured I would broaden the the scope of the blog roundup to cover websites generally, but usually blogs. com. The band is Sons of Cora, an Australian acoustic band that I only heard late last year, although you can hear them now although they've been releasing albums since 1999 and they're due to have a new one out in August this year which I'm looking forward to according to their website. Uh, They sing only psalms and that may seem a little weird to some people at first but I have to say it's a refreshing change from the shallowness of what passes the muster in a lot of Christian circles as inspirational or meaningful music when it's really just touchy-feely claptrap. When was the last time you ever heard a so-called worship album that's if you buy worship albums at all which can be a pretty bowel movement inducing enterprise when was the last time you bought a worship album that contained sad songs just an example I've never done it never ever heard it and yet a third of the psalms are sad ones psalms of lament what about a song in church that calls for divine judgment on the enemies of God I I haven't sung a song like that well for quite, I went, I went for quite some years without singing a song like that in church. But what about all the uh, imprecatory psalms in the Bible? It's a category of psalms that do just that. So these aren't albums of church worship songs, thank God. They are albums of psalms. And they're not paying me to do this, I swear. Check out their website at www.sonsofcora.com uh, You can read about them, listen to some samples, or you can even search for them on YouTube. I don't know if that's strictly legal or not, but some of this stuff is on YouTube. Uh, Check it out. Number five, and lastly, uh, oh, here's a website called www.preteristpodcast.com. This is a site uh, owned by Dee Dee Warren, who is a very good friend of mine, who I'm sure that at some stage will be making an appearance, or two, or three, on this show for an interview. Uh, She has a podcast called The Preterist Podcast, which I think kind of grew out of her Preterist site called uh, www.preteristsite.com, where she has her own blog as well, uh, Dizzle, Fold Shizzle, and now that the Preterist podcast is is really a site of its own, Preterism, for those who don't know, is a view within Christian theology. Specifically, it's a view on the right way to read certain passages of Scripture, most importantly, uh, those in what's known as the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24, and parallel passages in the other Gospels, as well as uh, the book of Revelation and large amounts of the prophetic literature of the Old Testament. Now, preterism is basically the opposite of, of the view called futurism. Now, futurism says that the right way to understand these passages is as passages that refer to the future, our future. So if you get books like the Notorious a Left Behind series, you'll see that view promoted in a kind of popular way. Projecting a future for the for planet Earth of gloom and doom. After the church has been vacuumed away in the dramatic event they call the Rapture. With the rise of a world dictator called the Antichrist. Uh, and a period of untold suffering called the Great Tribulation and a bunch of other stuff. Finally capped off with Jesus coming to Earth and setting up a political empire in Jerusalem that rules the world for a thousand years of peace and prosperity. Prior to a great battle uh, between good and evil called the Battle of Armageddon, of course, let's not forget that. Well, preterism is nothing like that. (laughs) In preterism, the prophecies about tribulation and destruction in Jerusalem were actually about events that occurred in the first century, recorded in history, uh, when Rome sacked Jerusalem. And the kingdom of God, in which Christ reigns, is seen as, well, already existing. Now, if you're listening to this right now and you're not even a Christian, this is going to sound like arguing over the length of Santa Claus's beard. But at very least, check her site out as evidence that not all Christians are Fruit Loops who think that the Middle East peace crisis is all about preparing the way for the growing of the world domination of Antichrist. What her podcast is doing is going through a pretty extensive commentary that Didi has written on Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse. Do check it out, if for nothing more than finding out that Left Behind in the Bible have about as much in common as the words Microsoft and Works. And on that note, it is the end of episode 2. In episode 3, as I said earlier, I'm going to be looking more at religion in the public square. Specifically, I'll be looking at the idea that we should only bring Uh, beliefs into public life that we can provide a certain type of justification for whether that idea is correct Uh, and i'll also uh, be asking whether or not that idea has anything to say about the place of religious convictions until then well until then you won't be listening to me will you and there's that music so later